Welcome to the Lighthouse Experiment, a Freedom Center Church podcast. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Lighthouse Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Chaplain Jim Parkin, and tonight we have Vice President of Operations from MMR, Lori Thiel, and Fran with us tonight. We're going to talk about hospice care and kind of the mental health piece that goes with that. So, well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, this has been like a good series of episodes having people kind of in the industry. I think it's beneficial for people to hear, you know what I mean? For as far as, you know, we're really kind of at in MMR in our, in that culture, we're really pressing into the mental health side of it, you know, and then it's, which is so important. I just saw a, a stat came out today or actually it was of from as of October 22nd of this year, there's like 112, suicide deaths nationwide for law enforcement and 119 line of duty mm. and it's just it's absurd it's just disturbing and then also they've doubled apparently i'm just getting this information as well they've doubled you know how we've been kind of and it's kind of cringy how i say it but the kind of the marketing piece for the veteran suicide has been 22 a day well, now the VA is coming through and I don't know where I, as a veteran, where I sit, feel how I feel about this, but they're suggesting that it's actually double. So 44 a day. And the basis is that they didn't, they were maybe miss categorizing some overdose deaths as actual suicide. So it's kind of, you know, and that's one of those aspects of mental health that, that bugs me a little bit, the kind of the totem pole kind of, you know, and, and the veteran community as a member of it, I can tell you we're pretty good at, at kind of like wanting to one up, which is weird that that's not something you would want to one up. But for some reason, like everybody just got super chapped a couple weeks ago because Tom Brady compared a NFL football season to deployment but he meant it in an honorable way. Like he was trying to honor us yeah. and, and a bunch of the community got super chapped. <laughs> and then like the very next week, you know, we've, we've gone up by, by double in, in suicide rates. So this is a weird mental health is a weird thing. You know, it's large and it requires so many outlets to get, embraced into this topic. Um, you know, I was teaching a healthcare quality class some time ago and we talked about what you just said, you know, that's with a very high suicide rate. And you look at hospitals that have closed programs down, funding that's not available to help support. Um, it's a huge, huge problem that requires every part of the healthcare system to get on top of this. And I'm not saying that they're not because everybody's trying, but limited funds and where are we putting them? Truly, right. where are we putting the funds? Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely too. There was recently, since I've been at MMR, I think I talked about this on the episode with Eric, but I, we were at Genesis and had a brand new EMT with me and I'm starting to do a report. And one of the residents comes running out of the parking lot and like, like, like flagging us down. So to be perfectly honest, as a like 18 year veteran of this industry, I was kind of like, Oh, I don't really want to insert myself in this, but have this brand new kid with me. It's the right thing to do. So we got there. And what had happened is a, there was a resident, I think it was a third year had cut his brachial artery with a scalpel and essentially bled himself out. It was terrible. And then I find out from my neighbor, who's a doctor after this whole incident, that resident like suicide and residency is extremely high It's equal to first responders, but they don't talk about it. And I was like, Jamie, why did like, why is this not a, and she said, because we have to do a mental, we have to do like a psyche valve going into residency. So if you're struggling, you don't want to say anything. If you want to still be a doctor. And I was like, well, that's exactly the same reason that you don't say anything in the military. Cause in the military is like, I'm really struggling captain or sergeant or whoever. And I'm like, okay, we'll get you the help you need. And adios. We'll send right. you home. So, like, and all those dynamics, yeah. you know. But you know, that it takes, actually, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. No, friend. <laughs> I was no. gonna say that that thought actually uh, crossed my mind too. Is there's I don't know if stigma is the right word, but it's almost like a the culture fosters this sense of weakness if you have feelings, <laughs> and it doesn't matter what yeah. field you're in. I I I'm have never been in the military. Um, I can only relate to what I've heard other people tell me. Um, but I can relate to the EMS feelings and the side of nursing. And, um, you know, if if we're talking about hospice tonight, you know, the, the saying is don't cry harder than the person in the room. (laughs) So you're not allowed to even show your feelings when someone does pass away. So, um, but yeah, you show any, any sign and, and all of a sudden you're just not you know, capable of doing your job supposedly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And there's so many layers to that. You know, friend, I have a did, friend. You, did they did they tell you that not to show your feelings in hospice? Did you hear that? Uh, I that phrase I had mentioned about not crying harder than the, yeah. the family members in the room, and um, I can actually remember one time when I was a case manager in the field, um, going to people's houses. There was a patient that I was very close with, and so I said goodbye to her because it felt appropriate. Yeah, and um, I started bawling. <laughs> I had my, you know, my girl moment, if you will. Sure. And I was brought into my manager's office and told that that was inappropriate. And um, I happened to have a trainee with me, and that's how you know they told on me or whatnot. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was told not to have those feelings, and so I don't work there anymore because I don't think that's right. <laughs> yeah. See, and that seems like be the opposite. You, you would think. See, that's baloney to me. And regardless of what industry you work in, again, we're trying to tell our teams, hide your feelings. You know, don't show your feelings. What is the harm of crying in front of your patient? I had a, a gentleman who passed in front of me and it just kind of threw me. I didn't know him that well. I'd been on a couple of shifts with him and his daughter showed up in the morning because I always work the night shift. And she's like, 
you're crying more than we are. And I'm like, it's okay though, right? It's okay to show feelings. You know, we, we keep suppressing everything, don't we? Mm-hmm. Suppress, suppress, suppress. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like last week's episode, I was kind of speaking to the totem pole because like I have a dear friend and she is the director of a ministry at our church. And what they do is they advocate for and they support parents who are doing foster care and adoption. So she's real dialed into that world and child trauma and stuff like that. And she, we were talking about how like, and I really like this language that I recently picked up on, but post-traumatic injury as opposed to disorder. But she was saying, actually these kids, their level of trauma is greater and, and more frequently. And I was thinking about it and I was like, well, that, very well maybe because I kind of knew getting into this and maybe it's because I was a veteran first, but getting into this industry that I probably I'll be get a little bit beat up physically and a little bit beat up mentally, but I already kind of had kind of the ability to negotiate my way through. So I can imagine it's different for, for young ones coming into who don't, but when you're talking to people and they're like, well, in this industry it's actually worse or, and then, I'm the kind of guy that is going to be, Oh, I, well, I hadn't considered that. You're probably right. So now I'm not going to mention, you know, like how horrible COVID was and how that nearly ended me and like how bad it was to see that doc do what he did and, and stuff like that. Like for me personally, it's not difficult for me to talk to people and say, yeah, this call here really threw me for a loop. But as an industry and as a, dude, like my first instinct is going to be, well, I'm not going to talk about my day then because this, this person over here, it might be worse for them. Okay. And then conversely, what I've been really trying to focus on within our little division there at Genesee is people who don't want to say anything about anything to me because they have that attitude of, well, he's been doing it so much longer. He's seen so much stuff been through so many more things how dare i mention you know something that bugged me in my first six months as an emt you know what i mean so trying to advocate for people it's okay like there's there we just to get rid of the idea of you cannot do each other we're supposed to be better together you know, you know, back to the feelings thing for a minute, Fran, because it's this is coming to me. I, I had a hospice nurse who um, committed suicide while I was employed with that particular team. And um, you know, I'm thinking now, reflecting on what you're saying, you know, suppress your feelings, don't talk. And maybe this um, nurse needed help and just didn't know how to um, speak up or heard so many messages um, like you heard, right? You don't share feelings, whatever, making me kind of question that now a little bit. Threw us off our loop. I um, yeah, it's 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 sad, but you know, progress is always slow, right? Even for the better change. Um, I'm hopeful that this will this uh, sense of culture and all of medicine will change. But uh, I remember one of the things that um, a good friend of mine had actually she had witnessed to me a little bit about, you know, everybody's storm is different. 
And mm-hmm. that kind of spoke to me a little bit where I can't compare what I'm going through to what someone else is going through because everybody's perception of the severity is different. It's You could say it's like a pain scale. Pain is subjective. Mm-hmm. Struggle is subjective. And, you know, I think even just eliminating, you know, like, hey, what you went through was rough. What I'm going through is rough. But comparing the two, you cannot. You cannot. Right. The The answer should be, you should still be able to talk about and feel safe to do so. And I can honestly say that, you know, no matter where I've worked, I don't think I've ever a hundred percent felt like that was okay. So. See how sad that is. You know, I think the vice assistant vice president, soon to be vice president, Eric speaking up at his level is probably one of the most powerful things that can start to change a culture in that regard. I started to read an article this morning about a physician who um, is struggling with mental health issues and probably the same thing, speaking up at a certain level sets the stage for everybody else, Mm. sets the tone. And we talk about something related to that during the week, you know, just about every week. Uh, maybe it's a question or we talk about, you know, something going on with somebody maybe else and just support. But that openness has just kind of cracked the can open. It's awesome. Right. Mm-hmm. right. That was a big deal. It was a big deal to have, like you said, at that level for people, you know, from brand new to people who've been in the business a long time, like, oh, okay, like this is like you said, soon to be soon to be vice president. This is like the third guy in command saying that I struggle. Right. Still. Like mm-hmm. real time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal. And I had a lot of people, like a lot of my people, my peers, be like, wow. You know, I, I mentioned to one of our alternate soups, hey, I gotta get I was just leaving shift. I'm like, I gotta go get ready to record. I got Eric coming on. She's like, Eric, Eric? I'm like, yeah. She's like, whoa. Wow. I'm like, right? <laughs> but, I mean, but that's the, it's a big deal to me to have the support I've had here. You know, I've, I was at my last agency for 18 years, and it was a very much a shut up, run your calls culture. Hey, I was telling Ashley, it started with burrito. Right. A burrito <laughs> photo, <laughs> if you recall. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I just felt like that was, I like doing stuff like that anyway. Yeah. You know, they're hitting me up for burritos again. So maybe right. I'll, I'll get the plancha going. So what I wanted to ask is far like in, in hospice, okay. is it different? Is it more difficult for I, the only way I really know how to put this? It seems like the, it's not that it's a poor outcome. It just seems like everything's in slow motion. Like, you know, the outcomes, what it's going to be, but is it more difficult having to kind of like wait out the inevitable? Like for me, it's like a bad call, bad outcome next, but is it more difficult to kind of have to be part of a slower process? Um, So I, I've had the privilege of working in people's homes and then as well as in a hospital setting with hospice and um, they're similar, but um, you know, the conversations always start with what is hospice and the elephant in the room is we're here because you have a terminal condition and you are voluntarily 
deciding that you want to put your comfort over finding a cure. Right. So once that's established, um, you know, the next question I get is how long are we talking <clears throat> tomorrow? Are we talking a week from now? It gets weird because people start to plan their vacations around it. Everybody's different. <laughs> so um, I would have to say with regards to your question, um, you know, my crystal ball, I always say my crystal ball is broken and won't be out of the shop until next week. So you're going to have to give me some <laughs> mercy and understanding. Um, and then, and it, it's more like a shifting of the focus. So you have to kind of live in the moment with, with okay. these families. Um, it's not something that can be planned. You can do the best you can, but it's all about being proactive. There's nothing fast in hospice ever. And sometimes that mm -hmm. includes death. Mm -hmm. um, and then other times people just throw you for a loop and they die very suddenly and you expected them to be with us for, you know, months. Um, so just kind of living in that moment. And I think that's where that pressure comes from, that they're always looking to you. You're the expert. You're the right. the pillar, you know, and, and um, you know, there's appropriate times to show your emotions and, and things like that. Um, but when it sometimes when it hits you out of the blue and, and you have that human side, then they, you know, they're feeling vulnerable, you're feeling vulnerable, and then it becomes a mess. So someone has to not be the one crying. <laughs> and, right. and I think that's kind of where this unforeseen pressure comes from. Where you're not allowed to feel anything until a very long time later. And having worked both sides in Francine, I think you probably will agree with us. When you're in EMS, you don't have a full understanding of hospice. Unless you've gone, unless you've experienced it, take that back. If you've personally experienced it, you probably get it. Um, but you don't really understand it from like a regulation standpoint or a business standpoint. And you, you know, you get a, a 911 call to go to a home only to find out somebody's on hospice. And you're like, what? You're on hospice. Why am I getting this call? Why am I transporting you? And it's because families panic. Mm -hmm. A, families panic, and my second experience has been, and I'm not saying that this is all hospices, but I will be transparent to say sometimes the nursing visits are not as often and frequent as they should be. So when a nurse isn't showing up like they're supposed to be to make their visit, then, you know, the care isn't being monitored and patient gets sick, no one knows what to do, maybe can't get a hold of anybody, so boom, you call 911. And so that's when EMS is responding. They're like, what's happening here? That's typical of what might happen. Panic or lack of care. Right. Absolutely. And I've responded. I've been in that situation. I'm different than a lot of other paramedics where I went ahead and found the resources to get some education on how awesome. that works. You know what I mean? Because I was in a situation where... Um, a uh, young lady, you know, mid forties, young lady with cancer and it was terminal and mom's still alive and she passes. And then mom revokes the DNR and the hospice papers. So, okay. Now it's, you know, and I, and it's, it was, it was a difficult situation because we work in a County with also sheriff deputies that show up. And they weren't necessarily agreeing with my pace, which was to talk this through. Yeah. You know, like, are you sure? Do you understand what this means? This is, this is what we have to do. And if you're okay with that, you know, like I was trying to give this poor lady every avenue to like get her stuff together. And then 
which he didn't. And we did our thing and the lady passed away anyway, but, right. but you know, it was just, I think there's a level and that's only something that can be trained like post class and on the road and with experienced providers. Yeah. But for me, it was important because I didn't want to, I, I wanted to have an understanding of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So when those, when those situations came up, that I would be able to kind of pause the hospice nurses there. I can say, okay, what's like, what's the play, you know, what are we doing, you know, and then work from there. I watched this even today, some hospitals, some hospitals, I keep saying some, I don't want to broad brush everybody. Um, again, patient goes back and forth around hospice. I'm in hospice. No, I'm not in hospice. I'm not in, I'm not. And then the next thing you know, they a decision's been made to go back in hospice or to be admitted for the first time. And then it's like, I need an ambulance stat to the hospital to get the person home. And there's the risk that they're going to possibly pass in the ambulance. That's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have to be one of the most traumatic things on a family or a spouse or whatever to have that happen. Um, just because we're not, you know, I've, I mean, you can read articles about this. Doctors are still not having those tough conversations soon enough. So right. again, EMS gets trapped into all this yeah, messiness. Yeah. Been there. And it's mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's terrible. I would have to say too that um I've I've kind of seen it from three very distinct angles. One was as a medic on the road running on a hospice patient. One was a case manager who responded or, or found out that EMS had been called <laughs> to my patient. And the third one is, is these um, uh, patients who qualify for hospice in the hospital. They sometimes call them GIP patients, general inpatient, who just aren't even stable enough to ride in an ambulance to go home. Right. And it's so complex. It's so big, but it's not black and white. There is a right. lot, a lot, a lot of wiggle room. And if someone does panic and call 911, I think just having that information out into the world that it does not automatically mean a hospice replication, um, you know, that's where communication with that hospice agency is really going to be key because there are instances mm-hmm. where it is appropriate to call 911 or the hospice nurse will call an ambulance service and have a patient taken to the hospital because there are limitations in a home. Um, but, you know, Patient choice, everybody has a choice in everything. They want to be Mm -hmm. on hospice, they don't, they, you know, whatnot. Um, It's all about education. And, but even in some scenarios, like Lori has said, patients panic, Um, but it shouldn't fall 100% on the EMS crew, that burden to be the ones to share that hospice education. So I think communication, who are you with? Let's call the hospice nurse. You know, what, or, or even simply, hey, what's your goal? What is your goal? Do you want to go to the hospital? What do you want? And and just even starting there, I think, would just go a long way. Because if you can keep someone at home, and that's their goal, because someone else called 911, right. you know, what are you, you going to do? So you just got to kind of work through that. And I love hearing that you took your time, um, Jim, yes. with your patient. Awesome. Thank you. From a hospice nurse medic. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's, well, there's a, I think there's a lot of, and this is why I love this episode. There's a lot of, there's some common misconceptions, you know, myths, for our side. Myths. Yeah. 
So absolutely, is it? I'll I'll just I'm going to fire off a couple of questions. But the first one is: it, Is it a thing? Can somebody be on hospice for disease process or symptom A, but not B? And if B happens, you still transport them. Is that is that a thing? Yes, very much a thing. Terminal diagnosis is what determines hospice eligibility, okay. and it's uh, dictated by the guidelines of Medicare. Okay. So the blanket statement is a terminal illness of six months or less. An example would be COPD or even CHF. Okay. But if someone falls and breaks their femur, their femur fracture may not be related to their terminal diagnosis of COPD right. or CHF. Okay. Therefore, they, you know, if they need some stabilization in a, a hospital or some intense therapy like IV pain medicine, we usually do orals in a home. Right. Um, then it's appropriate for them to go be a stretcher to a hospital while still on hospice. And it's the hospice agency's job to advocate for those patients' rights. If they choose to revoke because they want surgery, that is a way beyond EMS situation. And that's kind of where right. I come in in a hospital. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, where it gets a little tricky, and again, it should never fall on the EMS crew to make this determination. It's, it's not a blanket. You get kicked off hospice. That creates fear confusion. Um, I think it contributes to some of that back and forth of a mm -hmm. patient going to and from a hospital. And just like you said, that post training education, like, Hey, just call the hospice agency and start there. <laughs> you know, I think we go a long way. Right. Absolutely. And maybe you should do a CEU for us. I'm trying Lori, hook me up. <laughs> okay. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. That's what we did. That's what we did. And it was only a small handful of us at Swartz who took it. But an opportunity came up. And it was based on that situation. Like right. there, was a, there was discussion. And what was interesting is that the biggest hang-up was not our crew. Our crew just responded. And there was a hospice case manager and nurse there. And they said, well, this is different. You know, this is a different thing. This is a fall I think it was like a rib dislocated or fractured and they need to go for this. This is not why they're in hospice. It has nothing right. to do with that. So our crew was like, okay, cool. They did the thing, took the patient, then they get to ER and those docs are like, what are you doing here? They're on hospice, send them home. And then it's a young crew and they get in that kind of spin cycle. You know, what do we do? What do we do? And then, then we decided that it'd be, as FTOs, we decided it'd be a, a wise choice to reach out and find someone to give a little block of instruction, which was beneficial. Like more training is never bad. <laughs> nope. And what about the full codes, um, Francine? I'm sure you've seen oh, yep. some of that. We would en enroll patients on hospice, full code. Those are toughies. They are talking code status with a family is always uh, very heavy. It can be a very sensitive topic. Um, it can, the resistance or pushback to having a DNR on file could be anything from um, lack of education to cultural to, you know, a religious belief. And so everybody, again, does not require a DNR be on hospice. However, I do share my stories and we do provide that education and we do try to tell them and I can pull from my medic experience. This is what's going to happen. And some 
not all, but you know, there's like a few families out there. They just really, because that's the closure they need, or it's part of their faith, which you do have to be respectful of, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they want the comfort, but they also understand. And it's like, okay, as long as you know that this is happening, but again, that communication with a hospice agency and an ambulance crew can go a very long way. I think that if I was responding to a hospice patient and they were a full code, I would really love a phone call <laughs> to say, Hey, it's okay. Do your thing. You know, but maybe, right. you know, just grain of salt or I, I'm not quite sure how I want to phrase that. Just, just understand what the, the situation, this is why don't feel like you're doing anything wrong. This is right. a choice that was made. We understand what's going on. We're here to support you. You know, whatever happens, happens, and we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. You're not in trouble. <laughs> but it right. goes back to that family education, right? Family has to be very well educated. And so do we, right? So right. Do us. Yeah. right. Um, well, that, that was, that was going to be my next question. So you, was that, that whole kind of DNR. And because like recently we started to see some very strange advanced directives like one of the Genesee crews, I think just last week had the situation where it was like they wanted the cardiac meds, but no advanced airway support and no hmm. CPR. So hmm. there's kind of like, what do we do? I was like, I guess that <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seems useless, but if that's the request, you know, There's actually actually protocols. um, Genesee County has them, Saginaw has them with regards to hospice and EMS. And um, it's like a little tiny section in the back of, of all the protocols that all these standing orders that is very, it's very specific, at least in Genesee about what to do if you arrive on scene for a hospice patient with a full code to a hospice patient dies. Where did you leave from? That's where they go back to that kind right. of stuff. And uh, I didn't even know about it until I looked for it. So I think that would kind of help clarify, you know, we're, we're protocol minded driven. Like if it's not written yep. down, I'm probably not going to do it. <laughs> so right. um, I think that kind of helps clarify some things too, but you know, when in doubt um, I've had this instance where I personally run on a hospice patient and we called that control. And I had one of those wonky DNRs. It was like a handwritten thing that wasn't signed by a doctor it just had uh looked like something that someone had printed off the internet so you know when in doubt just go back to your base training of hey is this okay do we need to continue right let someone else tell me what to do oh yeah i've done that plenty of times you know it's, this is and it was tragic but this is just before i switched companies we were actually responded to a nursing home they had started the whole, we're doing the whole code on a full arrest, have a brand new sheriff's deputy paramedic. She arrived first doing all the things. They got the Lucas going and then their director of nursing shows up and she's like, I've spoken to the family or the spouse. This man had like stage four, everything cancer. And she wants, she's on her way, but would want you to stop and, as what happens when you're the have the grayest beard in the room, they're like, Hey, will you go talk to med control? I'm going to defer to you. So I did, I talked to Genesis and the, the, the attending was like, 
that seems appropriate. If you're okay with that, you do what you do. And once he expires, call me back. We'll do time of death and it'll be okay. And I know that's very trusting that they're going to produce some papers and it's all going to be okay. And then I'm walking back to the room because I left the room to have this conversation. I'm going back in and my partner's flipping out a little bit and I go in like, what happened? Well, the gentleman had a rhythm change and she shocked him and got pulses. <laughs> so now we have, you know, as a whole, now we had a transport. I've already had the conversation with the doctor. And so we transport this poor guy. And if either of you have ever seen the movie from back in the day, bringing out the dead, it was like that case. The dude would code and they do like two rounds of CPR and get him back for like 48 hours until they finally, Wow! because what happened, they got him back. So hmm. then now his wife had hope. Yeah. And now she's like, I'm going to revoke yeah. this because it's going to be okay now because he's fighting so hard. Yeah. Which it's tough. Tr- which it's true, tough. but it's all that, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, there's nothing. It seems to me that in this whole, in all of healthcare, there's no real black and white. Yeah. I mean, we have all those protocols and whatnot, but there's also all the nuance and gray area and, you know what I Jim, mean? Jim, if, if God doesn't just do it, it is it's not black and white. When God does right. it directly, it's black and white. <laughs> you don't do it. Other than that, man. It's fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. It's fuzzy. Always his will, not ours. <laughs> right. Says, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually had uh, someone come into. Um, the hospital where I'm currently working for a hospice agency and they were a successful ROSC resuscitation on scene from a spontaneous arrest. And he was 94 and didn't speak English. And he was awake maybe two days, but he was in agonizing pain. And he was so sick from all of his comorbidities that the most heartbreaking thing was his granddaughter, who was his advocate, she said, I wish that I had known what kind of suffering that my grandfather was going to go through. And he doesn't even get to die at home. He gets to die here in the hospital because he was too unstable to, to go out. Right. So as tragic of a situation that was, that is, um, I pull from those experiences. And I think that by presenting things that way from real life scenarios, it just helps someone make a better educated decision. But again, mm-hmm. everybody has a choice. Um, right. And sometimes we don't agree with them. And like your, your nursing home guy, you know, if, if it, uh, I'm glad to help the daughter. I hope everything went okay with this family. But I think that's really kind of the tough thing at the end of the day. It's like, oh, why, why is this happening? You know? Right. And uh, just got to remember. There was, a, there was a Swartz medic way back in the day and I couldn't believe he was saying what he was saying to this family, but we would respond to this guy who was super sick for such a long time. And just because of like you mentioned before, because of faith, you know, and religious reasons, they wouldn't put him in hospice. They wouldn't do those things, but they didn't want him to suffer and they wouldn't do anything official, but they didn't want him to suffer. So my, like a dear friend of mine and then a longtime Genesee County paramount, like Swartz paramedic, his advice to the family was, you know, when I was a new medic, freaked me out. I was like, dude, we're all going to go to jail. 
what he told them was, okay, so when he passes, this is what you need to do. You need to go, you need to make a pot of coffee. You need to call your whole family. You need to get everything in order and then call 911. And he like wrote the woman a list, 911, call them at number 10. Do all these things first, then call 911. And as that's exactly when he finally passed mm-hmm. away. They lived in Grand Lake. I responded to it, and that's exactly what she had done. And she was, it was such peculiar joy. She said, I did exactly what he said. I made the step coffee. I made the bed. I did the thing. I yeah. called all my family. I called our pastor, and then I called 911. Yeah. Mm. So, and, and that's just, those things are from experience, but it's tough, right? Because we do have protocol. And we do have, and there are still lawyers and, you know, <laughs> and there is, you know, maybe you have the one family member that disagrees with all of this, mm-hmm. which is my segue to my next question. How tough is family? How is it? What's the nuance there when you're in this process and you have family members that don't necessarily agree with the process? Oh, my stars. What a loaded question. <laughs> All these stories and situations are, are rolling through my brain. I'm trying to pick one. Um, you know, when, when in doubt, just you go the legal way. Who's the next of kin? You know, um, hospice is a very family-centered approach to care. Everybody should have a voice, but not everybody gets to make the final decision and have the final say. And um, I always refer back to I hear what you're saying. What do you think your mom wants? What do you think your grandfather wants? And nine times out of 10, that you know, brings them back to the point of, you don't have to agree with it, but it's their choice, not yours. You know? and, uh, but then once in a while, you get that guy <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. who comes at you. And um, you know, I think just having, just keeping up that calm approach and just being like, I, I get your suffering. You must be in the anger stage of grieving right now. And let me help you anyway. Um, and then you just, you know, find whatever person can get through to that person. You know, everybody's emotions are different. Um, mm-hmm. not, again, but most family members, they, they usually seek that one person out and they just, you know, put them over here for mm-hmm. now, but um, it's, it's tough. Some people yeah. think hospice is assisted suicide. Some people think that it's, uh, you know, we're here to just, uh, I don't even know what people think. Half the time it's free stuff. It's free care, you know? Um, and I think just being sensitive that again, everybody has an opinion and just remembering why we're here. You asked us to be here. We want to help. Right. How can I help you? All right. It's, it's interesting because in my family, so, my dad passed away in 98. He had Alzheimer's for a long time. Mm. So we have my mom who is 80, um, 52. She's 82. Um, I have an older and a younger brother and we're all very much, my brothers and I are very much, we have our lane and we stick to it. So the way she spelled out her with a lawyer, her advanced directives is when that time comes, I am explicitly the one in charge because I'm medical. Financials, my older brother's in charge because he's he's good there. Uh, my younger brother, I'm sure he has a job, but he's he's too emotional for like 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 he would not be able to he would he would be revoke hospice guy. Okay. 
You know what I mean? And then, no matter what, he was kind of that when our dad died. Mm-hmm. And he had been suffering so long and he wanted them to do more. I mean, what are you talking about? Like, you know, but it's, it's just interesting in that and how specific. Like she's like, it's DNR unless we're at Thanksgiving dinner and then witnessed and like, there's a full team to run a code. Other than that, she's like, I don't know, no part of it, but she worked in a nursing home that my dad was in. So she could still be with them oh. and stuff like that. So with that, she became super educated and how all these things play out. So which helped her to navigate her own kind of end of life decisions. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I wonder, because family's tough for the EMS world, you know, I was, so I was always curious of what that must look like. That's why I have a social worker on my team. It's an interdisciplinary oh, yeah. approach, and that is way out of my expertise. <laughs> How long was on your team, Francine? Because I think most people don't even realize that. Oh, yes. Chaplain, social worker, nurse, the medical director, hospice aides. There's lots and lots of people. Um, you know, to, to address things like what you're bringing up, it's not a, a solo act, you know, it's not, I can't know everything. I'm not an insurance expert or a power of attorney expert, but I do know my job as the nurse case manager is to direct you to those sources. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if someone's super struggling, you know, you just kind of go through the team and you find, you know, what, what is like, what's the thing? Like, what is, what are you feeling? Um, and, you know, it, I haven't had any two issues. I haven't had anybody like, you know, angrily call 911 or anything like that. <laughs> you know, most people right. are, tend to be respectful. Um, but, you know, there are, there are people out there who, who try to pull some shenanigans. But, you know, we're there to protect the person, you know, right. who signed on and who they want to be in their circle. And if you don't want to be in that circle, that's okay. You don't have to be. Hmm. Gotcha. It's interesting. I know a dude who's a, well, he was for a little bit of time, a hospice chaplain. And I think he's going to pastor a church again. I'm not sure, but he had been at one church, then moved into that space. So I should get him on here at some point. I'd be interested because doing chaplain things for the fire department and for EMS folks is one thing I can't imagine for him. It must be a way more tender well, it's death every day. You know, it's kind of, it's all right. you do. You're dealing with death, you know, over right. and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what would you think the greatest, the, like the, when it comes back to circle back to mental health in that, in the hospice industry, what are the, the biggest struggles? What is the, like the, the main, cause you know, in EMS, it's call to call to call to call to call and next guy, can't know what I just was involved with. You know what I mean? Um, I'd have to say, you know, when I was a in the field as a case manager, that the house to house in the community, <clears throat> I think losing someone, a patient that you know was going to die, that you've invested a lot of emotions and time with the family and not being able to have that closure for yourself, that bereavement phone call, that reaching out like, hey, are you guys okay? You know, I was a big part of this person's life and now I'm, now I'm not part of it anymore, you know? Right. And then in the hospital, I've had, you know, seven people die within an eight hour time period. And it's like, one more person dies. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and, right. and then like, what do you do with that? You know, so that dark humor definitely helps. But, um, 
you know, just like in EMS, you know, you just find an appropriate, healthy way to cope. And, um, you just, you know, I'll let my husband know, like I had a lot of people died today. We knew it was going to happen. It still sucks. I need a mm-hmm. hug. <laughs> right. You know, or, right. you know, he'll, he'll share with me. He's an ear nurse now. So he'll share with me his day. And then we just, you know, never suffer in silence. That was our agreement. Well, we're never going to suffer oh, yeah. in silence because then it just becomes bitterness. And then nobody likes to be around that guy. <laughs> right. We took our, um, at one branch, we had our social worker actually make time for the staff so they could unwind, debrief, whatever, you know, whatever they needed. They had a resource right there for them that was helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. You know, I think that, like, on our side of things, like I had just mentioned, it gets tough when you have one bad call and then the next call is you know, like I said, you, it's just, they don't need to know that family doesn't need to know what I was, what I just did. You know, I think on our side, it gets, it's too, at least for me, it's worse when I responded to something tragic and then the next guy is, you know, one of our least favorite vagrants here in Genesee County. And it's the same thing. And it's, again, it's his third trip, you know, he's in the rotation you know, so we're going back to Hurley and he's been to the other two hospitals already and Hurley, you know, that's, that's where it gets difficult to keep your emotions in check. You know, sometimes other times, like is what a relief, Mm -hmm. this guy, and it's just going to be harmless. It's going to be a harmless ride to the hospital. You know, so I can't imagine working constantly in that end of life phase. I can say with certainty that that's not the job for me. There's actually a lot of joy in hospice. It's not all morbid and death. You know, there's a lot of life in it. Um, You know, a lot of people come onto it quite early and their quality of life, you know, just knowing you had a little impact that they could watch their favorite TV show and have a a grandson come visit from college, you know, and and their home is beautiful. Right. Um, You know, people who wait too long and, you know, they're actively dying and they have minutes to hours. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, not ideal, but it's a chance for someone to say goodbye, you know? Um, and just like EMS, you know, the, you know, the emergency's over and you walk in the room, you're seeing them at their most vulnerable. Same thing for hospice. Just kind of remembering, like, I think there was something positive that came from this. I'm going to take that home with me. Otherwise I'm going to be very depressed. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Nice. All right. I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys came on. This is a good episode. You know, I think, like I said earlier, this is not a frequent topic in the EMS community. I think a lot of people don't know, you know, they don't know that kind of stage or a level of healthcare, but it's still healthcare, you know, so I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks for letting for us, me. uh, yeah, I have our voice on this. Fran, oh, you're yeah. up for CEU. It's on record now. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Gotcha, girl. <laughs> Thanks. Right on. Okay. All Thanks, right. Jim. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to do our little close, and then that'll be it. We'll sign off. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Freedom Center Church and Kingdom Builders, for your continued love and support. And we'll see you guys next time. Remember, if you need help, dial or text 988 Get the help you need. All right, see ya.